podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Man there trying to stop Drogba getting himself into further trouble. It's not a bad ball for Pelé on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was! Carlos Alberto! Maradona just walked away from Hoddle then. joined by uh, Ibrahim Mustafa on the podcast today to talk about the book uh, No Longer Naive, which I have with me here handily. Um, Ibrahim, just for our listeners, would you mind briefly introducing yourself a little bit and also maybe a bit about what inspired you to write the book in the first place? Uh, hey, Alex, and hey, everyone listening. Um, yeah, just um, I'm, yeah, as you said, I'm Ibrahim Mustafa. I'm a journalist and author. I've been been a journalist for a quite some time now can't even work out nearly 15 years now maybe a little bit longer um but yeah just sort of back and forth broadcast written journalism radio tv online the lot and um yeah i think basically what happened was uh pre-lockdown the first the first big lockdown once the world shut down back at the start of 2020 i um actually <laughs> lost the job that i was doing at the time and so i was sort of stuck at home twiddling my thumbs a bit i mean i was freelancing from home but you know just trying to get work where i could and mm. i thought you know i had time to myself i thought that this idea that i had sort of festering in my head that had been sitting there for a number of years uh, i thought finally get it to put pen to paper and finally get this book about african football that i'd been thinking about um down and um yeah and that's what i did i spent a few quite a few months on that just trapped in the comfort of my living room and then um yeah, and it's there for people to read. Should they should they choose? Yeah, um, what I really found interesting uh, reading it was kind of the kind of progression of FIFA kind of having to take uh, account of Africa or you know let African teams into the World Cup because you know you read the kind of the history of the World Cup and it was very much a European South American thing only. And I think would would you say the kind of 1966 kind of boycott of the African teams was in some ways kind of the turning point of this, and then they kind of had to actually change with the way they were uh, managing things well hugely i mean because before that i mean without giving too much away of the book i mean you you see that fundamentally like you say it's an, a eurocentric south american focus the world cup and other other parts of the world were all sort of funneled into these weird qualification processes mm. where you'd have sort of countless teams from africa battling out for one spot to face off against like an asian team who would still have to face against one of the leftover european sides for a place in the tournament so and that was pretty much all the way up to like you say 1966 where more african teams 
come more African countries have started to become independent off the back of sort of post-colonialism and these countries have started getting together their own football teams without the say-so of sort of pre prior colonial rulers I'm sure we'll get onto that later when we get to the main subject of uh, what we're talking about today but yeah, um, yeah. And a lot of these sides of, of finally finding their independence and ultimately turning around in in the football world now and saying, "Look, give us give us at least one place at a World Cup." And FIFA basically said no. I mean, the head of FIFA at the time um, was an Englishman, Sir Stanley Rouse, and he was very much not interested in making you know giving Africa that 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 guaranteed spot. And the promise came from the next guy who was who would eventually take over from him, the Brazilian Jao Avalanche, who basically wooed Africa with all these promises of um more inclusivity, which he delivered on with mm. you know there's no two ways about it, but obviously he's he's done it for votes to, to yeah. get the African block of votes. And yeah, and it, it worked in his favor and it worked out for Africa in the end. Um so after 1966, as you say, there was a there was a boycott. African teams just refused to partake in the qualifying process. And as FIFA was growing at that time, that was a terrible look for them really. You can't have you can't claim to be a World Cup if an entire continent of countries are just turning around and saying well we're not going to be a part of your your extravaganza that you claim yeah we we, we actually yeah. had that as a as a trivia question when we were looking at the 1966 world cup and it was how many teams actually played matches from both asia and africa mm. to qualify for the world cup and it it was two it was a, yeah. a playoff between north korea and australia yeah to, and that was then that's your entire representation of europe <laughs> and, and asia yeah it's crazy isn't it and uh so yeah beyond that it then they started to include african teams and um yeah so the first um, 1970 was Morocco, the first African team to play in the World Cup. 74, you had Zaire. Um, 78, you had Tunisia. Um, 82, you had two teams the, the, because the tournament was growing. And again, these promises that Havelunch made when he became FIFA president was that, you know, we're going to keep incre increasing the number of teams that are allowed. In 82, you had Algeria and um, Cameroon. Um, in 80, 86, you had uh, Algeria again and um, Morocco again. Um, 1990, you had Cameroon and Egypt. And then after that, it becomes three teams, then it becomes five yeah. teams. And then we sort of get to the present day. I won't name every team that's ever played. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's it, it has progressed ever since that, that infamous boycott of 1966, basically. Yeah, I think um, we subjected ourselves to the FIFA propaganda film United Passions, which I don't know whether you've seen. But I have not. Uh, <laughs> you, it was probably yeah. that's for the best. But one mm. of the things that it does kind of show is that actually, you know, um, one of the ways that sort of Joe Havelange and Sepp Blatter got power within FIFA, like you said, was that they kind of they recognized that the old guard were, like, you know, just completely ignoring and mistreating African countries and also other regions of the world. And this was a great way of a way of them to gain votes. And do you think, I mean, other than sort of uh, increased participation in the World Cup, do you think FIFA has actually, you know, taken African countries into the footballing family or is it still that kind of old relationship? Um, it's yeah. difficult to say. I mean, sort of, it's a two-way thing, really. It's kind of like, yeah, if you are, if they are adopting the African nations and saying, look, we want more of you in the tournament, they've had sort of no, no choice but to sort of try and help filter down a bit more in terms of, you know, it, like I say, the inclusivity in terms of whether it be money or just just influence to be able to get in there and maybe have a sort of direct them in the right way. But, you know, without wanting to get myself sued, there's obviously uh, 
<laughs> instances <laughs> where money might not end up where it's supposed to go to and um people making agree making agreements with one another that may not be in the best interest of the actual football teams but simply just a front of in terms of representation for representation's sake rather than the actual intention to improve the football so to speak yeah mm. exactly and getting on to the the main topic that we wanted to talk about today which was senegal in 2002 is this uh, senegal and maybe ghana in in 2010 are they kind of the sort of seminal sort of african teams of the world cup sort of both culturally and impact wise um i would say cameroon in 1990 Nine, they yeah. set they, they set the really set the bar there um and then yeah you had nigeria in 94 and 98 they, perhaps they didn't get as far in the tournament but there was definitely a cultural impact there where you know their performances had people stand up and you know had a bit, bit more notice of african teams and players and a lot of the players end up migrating to europe and playing for european teams throughout the 90s just based off initially cameroon but then just as the sort of performance of Nigeria in 94 and again, perhaps in 98 as well. Um, perhaps less so in 98. I mean, they probably were well, players were probably more well known by then. Mm. Um, yeah, in 2002 with the Senegal, um, that was almost like something completely new because, um, it was it, there are parallels to be drawn with the Cameroon performance in 1990 in that perhaps they were more unknown to sort of the, the wider global footballing populist basically but um yeah they were it was an interesting that like because you know the history of senegal as a country is it was obviously it was colonized by france as part of french west africa initially until they gained their independence and was actually one of the one of the countries that post-colonialism actually did relatively okay if you want to I mean, without getting too much into the geopolitical stuff, there wasn't. It's, it's like a lot of countries end up breaking down in terms of civil war and things mm. like that. Senegal was one of the ones. That, I mean, they, I think they were literally referred to, perhaps by a European, as a, the beacon of African sort of stability, okay. basically. When when did of, when did Senegal get to independence? Sorry, um, it would have been. <laughs> sorry, I don't mean it, to put it like. I, yeah, no, period, no, sorry. So. <laughs> I think I. I, 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 I it's either 1958 or 1960. Okay, so it's that yeah. old oh, that, that area, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that, that time. That time. Um, and so, yeah, they've... Um, but on the footballing stage, despite how the country had seemed to be perceived as stable, um, they hadn't really made any sort of impact on the global stage anyway, and barely even in Africa. I mean, they'd never gone beyond the quarterfinals of the AFCON um, in all their appearances. Um until 2002 when they got to the final and lost on penalties to Cameroon, who were at that time considered the best team in Africa. And funny enough, in 2002, when Cameroon went to the World Cup, people expected them to do really well. People thought mm. that, you know, this is the time African football is going to make it to the latter stages and it's going to be Cameroon. They'd won the Olympic gold in 2000 and like I say, they just beat Senegal in the um, AFCON in, in the months leading up to the World Cup in Korea and Japan. Uh, so everyone was really sort of putting their hopes on uh, Cameroon there. And even their group, they had um, 
they had Germany, who weren't the best Germany, although they got to the final. Uh, they had uh, Ireland and Saudi yeah, Ireland. Arabia. So, people, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, no, no, but Ireland, Ireland, Ireland surprised Roy, Roy people. Keen, Roy Keane less Ireland, I mean, Ireland surprised people in that tournament, probably as much so as, as Senegal did, to be honest, because a lot of people didn't, particularly with the Roy Keane thing, it, people didn't yeah. really expect Ireland to do a great deal, but, you know, it was great, for them, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, back to Senegal, sort of deviate yeah. from them. Um, yeah, so they've got to the AFCON final that year, but people still didn't really know a great deal about them, although a lot of their squad were playing in France. Mm. You know, there's a connection there because... It was like, you know, all, all, I think almost all, like two, almost all, but two were basically playing in 21 France. 21 of the 23 yeah. Yeah. Were, were, were playing in France um, mm. leading up to the tournament. So, you know, they... Well there, well, there might have been a shock factor around the rest of the world. There should have been no excuses for France, truth be yeah. told, because they were well aware of what these players could do. They may not have been playing for the top sides, but they were well aware that these players are playing within your country. So, you know, be aware of them. Although, mm-hmm. ironically, but all the France players were probably playing abroad. So, there you go. Yeah. But mm. what was the... Because I was reading the kind of Senegalese-French relationship is maybe not as quite as acrimonious as, you know, other um, former colonial states. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think there's still quite a lot of French influence in terms of sort of governance. And um, so, yeah, there's a pathway for people to sort of migrate between, well, I say between the two countries, but from Senegal to uh, France. Um, And one of the protagonists of this, that opening game, that infamous opening game between France and Senegal, Patrick Vieira was born in Senegal, Dakar, and he was raised there till he was six years old before his family moved to France. And um, well, for, you know, he moved to France and then became, you know, French footballing legend, one of the best players in the world at the time. And um, yeah, so there again, these connections between these two countries uh, set up for what there was so much narrative going into that opening game where they played against each other. And of course, as we all know now, Senegal pulled off this shock, shock win. Um, there where they beat the France, who were of course, of course, the world, world and European champions at the time. So yeah, it was all, um, yeah, it's all very and- interesting. It's a, it's a great story and one that I think that sort of res- will resonate for many, many, many years to come. Yeah, and was it kind of, I mean, I, I was reading also, you know, the French team, there were some comments about them maybe not taking the Senegalese team so so seriously. Do you think all this was kind of, which kind of motivated the Senegal, like there was, you know, the first ever World Cup game and then it was against France. It was kind of the perfect kind of storm for them in some ways. Absolutely, unquestionably. Yeah. It definitely would have been, I mean, like I say, France were world and European champions. It, and in the sense that yes, in they would have probably taken Senegal lightly, but I don't want to say justifiably, but in their minds, I mean, it's a, it's a natural complacency that I imagine will kick in if you yeah. if you consider yourself that dominant and that good, and you face up against a team making their World Cup debut. That you know they would have thought that this game, even playing at sort of seventy five percent, they probably thought they would have won. You know, they expected mm. to win. They walked into the game thinking that the game was theirs. And obviously, on the flip side of that, Senegal, of course, will be motivated. I mean, like I said, you had so many players playing in France who probably would have been hearing in the, in the months building up to the game that, okay, France are, you know, how people predict stuff. They would have probably just not even considered Senegal as a threat, basically. And yeah. these players, of course, that's going to be building inside them as they head into that game. And... Um, Senegal also had a French manager as well who obviously has his motivations to beat France as well so you know he'll have been drumming into their heads um, 
what how important it was to win this match, and they went out and did it. Yeah, what is the what is the story with uh, Bruno Metsu, the coach? Because I was, I mean, he was reading that he sort of had this very, uh, I want to say, laissez-faire approach to the team, and that he kind of let some of the individuals like El Hadjouf kind of get away with certain things, which you know wouldn't normally fly. What, where did he kind of come from, and where did he fit into the well, into the story? His 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 um sort of career trajectory is um. He, he was quite nomadic before that. It wasn't a huge amount of success. I mean, he tried other African countries and didn't it, it, things didn't really stick before that. Um, then he took over Senegal in 2002, and then it just seemed like everything, right, right man, right place, right time. He managed to make them better than they ever were before. And again, through that approach, perhaps, like it's spotting the talent and nurturing that talent and saying, like, look, you're as good as you can you're as good as you are go out there and show it which is um effectively a contrast to what happens to a lot of african nations when they hire european managers who mm. a lot of them sort of come in with this uh or had in the part well this still happens now but um they come in with this approach of this european approach a bit more less willing to allow players to express themselves and want to be more rigid and more tactical and trying to get them and just that almost a bit is that because of certain sort of stereotypes about African players that, you know, we need to, well, they're all skillful, but we need to, you know, teach them how to, you know, how to build from the back or like have a flat back four and that kind of thing. And then, you know, you need to, need to be, provide these structures. Is that where that kind of approach comes from? I mean, that's exactly where it comes from. Yeah. It's this idea that they don't know how to structure themselves. I mean, you know, not some of these stereotypes are, are, are rooted in fact, unfortunately, but equally, it is this idea that, I mean, you know, the title of the book, I said no longer naive. It's because yeah. of that word naive was always attributed to African teams once they, once it all went wrong. It's like, oh, this team is completely naive in their approach to a game. They don't know how to close out a game. I mean, going back to the previous two examples of Nigeria and Cameroon, Cameroon 2 1 up against England in 1990 in the quarterfinal, and then yeah. can see two penalties and end up going out, albeit in heroic circumstances. Nigeria 1 0 up against Italy. Um, in the second round in 94, one minute left to play, concede a goal and yeah. then go on to lose. Um, yeah, and I think that's where that sort of idea comes from, the naivety of these teams that can't see it out all the way to the end. And um, yeah, but not necess- but that isn't necessarily, isn't necessarily to be all and end all to sort of rein that in. And that is what Metsu was good at with Senegal, he sort of allowed them to express themselves in that game against France. Like El Hajjouf is running this far He's more experienced French. Yeah. yeah, he was incredible from the from the word go as well. It's not like he even grew into the game from the first couple of minutes. You, if you rewatch the game, he is running at this French defense. He gets caught out offside quite a few times. But yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's still amusing to see the likes of Marcel Desai and um, Frank Leboeuf just just bamboozled they have no idea what to do with him like he kept switching flanks he's running through the middle half the time and they didn't know how to contain him and it was it was brilliant and even in the midfield you know i mentioned patrick vieira and that was the big the big the big story there was the fact that he was being shackled in that midfield by these really aggressive midfielders of like Salif Diaw and um Papabu Diop in you yeah. know starting more advanced but yeah they're around him and they don't they don't let him see the ball or if they do they're closing him off and stopping him making the passes that he well he can and always did do. Yeah so it was um it was very interesting they they went in there bold they went in very bold against France and France didn't expect that at all. It was um 
yeah, rather than sitting back as many teams might tend to do against a, a team of supposed superiority, they went for it and got their just rewards in the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the first World Cup I kind of remember uh, watching, and I, you know, from you kind of have these memories of these games, and you, then you rewatch them now, and it's you kind of see how your kind of memory or story doesn't match up to reality. So in my head, it had yeah. always been this kind of like somewhat kind of like smash and grab job. And then mm. they scored the goal. And, and I know Henri hit the crossbar and that kind of thing as well. But I, when I watched the game back, I was like, well, I mean, the the better team completely. And France just looked so slow and kind of yeah. pedestrian. Mm. Yeah, I mean, totally. It's, um, I mean, I, f- I felt the same when I was, you know, as part of the research, when I sort of rewatched it, I, I was, yeah, I was surprised about how quickly Senegal came out of the blocks in that game. I mean, yeah, as it, as the game wears on, France sort of start to take control, but they just can't find a way through. But they were put. They they didn't know what they didn't expect this from Senegal. It is the first half performance anyway, and um, yeah, it was a deserved winning. It wasn't a smash and grab. It wasn't a back to the wall kind of thing. It was they went for it. You know, and yeah, they, and they got it out there. And that's the thing. They went into the next couple of games. I mean they went in against denmark and it was as a as a draw one all draw but um it was a sort of like a, another back and forth really they conceded early on uh equalized fantastic equalizer um for uh, salif diao and then he got sent off <laughs> just to show how um yeah <laughs> sort of how things were how exciting things were for them at the time and then the final group game which they um I think, well it turned out they needed a point to go through but they went right into a three nil lead against Uruguay. So the three nil first half lead and almost, and sort of making going back to the point where I was saying about the naivety, it's like they almost didn't know what to do. At I was going like, to ask yeah, you about this because I was... almost had no idea what to do. And then nearly, very nearly threw it away. You know, as a, and that's, I mean, that is a fantastic game. One of the games of the tournament that was, if you re, if, get a chance to rewatch that, even in just extended highlights, it's just, it goes back. It's so yeah. And... I, I watched it. I watched the game the other day, and I, I like if you're stuck for something to do over Christmas, just watch this game. It's just mm. it's it's so much fun. Like like you said, they go in th- up three up three nil at halftime and completely dominant. Like I feel like Uruguay barely you know had mm. a kick of the ball, and then the second half, and then my my endearing memory also of watching that game back is I, I think it's it's three all, and there's sort of ball. Um, it's in the last minute. It kind of floats in the box, and Silva, the Senegalese goalkeeper, sort of charges out to the edge of the mm. 18-yard box, and there's a shot. And then I can't remember who heads. I think it's Diata, maybe heads it off the line in like the 92nd minute. It's crazy. Yeah, he heads it yeah. off the line, and it's not even that's not even the move over. It sort of loops up in the air. <laughs> he look, he heads it straight up in the air, and it's um um I think it's Morales, the Uruguayan forward, who I think he'd scored already. Oh yes, Morales, yeah, yes, and, yeah, and he leaps up for the header, and everyone just freezes because it's like this is it. They've completely messed yeah. this up, and he misses from about half a yard out, and it's yeah. like wow, it's, how has he missed it, that? Yeah, it's you know he's literally yeah. in in directly in front of the goal, and it's one of those head. You know when yeah. when if you're a Sunday league striker missed it on the weekend you just like how did he miss that and well the cliche maybe he had too much time to think about it yeah <laughs> comes out of the sky but yeah. what was the um when this whole you know senegalese journey was going on after the france win and then kind of gaining momentum what was the kind of impact of that both in senegal and also maybe across across africa because the rest um, of the african team didn't have that great a tournament i mean cameroon like you said and also south africa yeah nigeria disappointed as well yeah, yeah. just um yeah it was um I mean, this is that is it beating the world champions. I mean, it like I said, there was parallels to Cameroon beating 
um, Argentina 12 years earlier. It it was this sort of, it was a big deal for obviously for Senegal. They had like national holidays, people out celebrating in the streets and everything like that because they'd never experienced anything like that, not even close as a, as a footballing nation. Um, and um, yeah, ultimately it kicked, there's, there, there was a huge legacy if not just from that game, but from the, their entire tournament performance uh, to reach the second round, to reach the second round and then to reach the quarterfinals. Um, it, 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 it was a big deal for the country. It was a big deal for Africa. It was the idea that there was not an established order in Africa, which is what people may have started to think by the mm. end of the nineties with obviously Cameroon, with Nigeria, perhaps with South Africa, even though they tailed off, really badly after that yeah. um and the, the sort of the um the arab teams of the north african teams there was an idea that you know african football is only concentrated within these small parts but then senegal sort of really upset that by coming in and putting in such a great performance and then you see in 2006 you had a load of load more teams come in and obviously ivory coast and ghana the development that they had over the coming years was um sort of you know pretty much is it down to what Senegal did? Is there an influence? Perhaps, you know, there's a, certainly something there. Mm, yeah. There's yeah. certainly something that sort of helped kickstart kick start things mentally for the countries across the entire continent. I felt just because it was such a big, such a big win, such a big performance for them and uh, such a great display and their own legacy. Um, you had a number of players who ended up moving to Europe off the yeah. back of the to Europe um, from their French clubs to the Premier League. You had a number of players, just you know, obviously El Hajji, everything he did, Alusise, Andy Fai, Salif Dow, Papa Dubu of course. Yeah, all these players ended up coming to the Premier League and you know, not disgracing themselves, you know, but having mm-hmm. decent careers at the Premier in the Premier League, you know. I mean, even El Hajjouf, for the fact that he failed at Liverpool, he still played in the Premier League and, <laughs> of course, for Rangers for years after that. I mean, he was still playing in Britain in, you know, 10 years after he, after that World Cup. So, you know, he, he, can't, he wasn't, he can't have been that bad of a player, can he? So, yeah. Yeah. What, what is the story with El Hajjouf? Because, I mean, some managers seem to be able to get kind of the best of him. And, but there was always these kind of like controversies kind of circling around him. Is he just, was he just sort of that kind of playing on the edge kind of a player, maybe like a Suarez or something like this? Or what was the. Well, that's the interesting thing. Cause obviously you watch that France game and he is um, just sort of like the, the direct, the, just direct, give him the ball and just make let him do what he likes. And I think when he came to England, I think it was probably a bit of a culture shock that it was a change in the style of football. And maybe in those first months or years, it was a struggle for him to sort of get acclimatised to the English game. But then he um, almost was able to re sort of like just recalibrate his own mentality and become this sort of nasty sort of, you know, kind of player which you know is has been adored in england for years so yeah. the criticism of it is very strange to be honest so um yeah he ended up sort of adapting to a different style of game that people didn't really expect and especially for his size as well he's a small wiry kind yeah. of guy to be getting stuck into those ta- tackles to be getting mouthy with other players and you know being that sort of like nuisance of a footballer ended up being the best thing for him, you know, and that's what made him a relative success at the clubs he played for after his spell at Liverpool. So I felt that, yeah, he was, uh, and he, 
it just the by the sheer fact that he was able to carve out a career in England was a huge thing for people back in Africa and particularly Senegal. I mean, you look at someone like Sadio Mane now, who is not the kind of player that El Hajjouf turned out to be, yeah. but perhaps is the kind of player that Juve was initially. And he just attributes his, he just says, yeah, El Hajjouf was like a hero to him and everyone growing up, you know, in that era in Senegal because he, what he went on to achieve. And so for how he's perceived, perhaps from an English point of view, is very different to how he's perceived in, um, back in his homeland. Yeah, of course, of course. So after the after the group stage, they beat uh, Sweden in the golden goal, and then but in the quarters they lost to Turkey in the goal. What was um, did the team just sort of run out of steam, or did they just come up against a better team in Turkey? And is there kind of a lot of regret about that they weren't able to go to the um, semi final? So yeah, they um they lost to Turkey on a golden goal right at the start of the extra time period of that of a game where I think both teams. I mean, Turkey was much as a surprise package in that World Cup as Senegal. Yeah. So I think both teams were perhaps nervous throughout that quarterfinal and just thinking, right, we can't mess this up because this is our chance to get to yeah, the World Cup. Yeah, they finally have something to lose kind of yeah. thing. And so there was an apprehension on both sides. And I think, yeah, for Senegal, all the bold approach that they had taken beforehand kind of... I don't I don't, I don't want to say that it was they were, they were fearful, but I do think... There was definitely a point where they thought, actually, yeah, this, like you say, there is something to lose here. It's like, you know, mm. there's ex- expectations have been raised. And um, yeah, and it was a golden goal that knocked them out. So it wasn't like they were soundly beaten or anything like that. It was just a, it could have gone either way. And again, because golden goal, you know, in another in another tournament, maybe they come back and equalize in that extra time period and maybe things are very different. So who knows? Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, and I don't think there was a huge disappointment after that because they exceeded expectations. Yeah. The disappointment comes after that in that they took so long to qualify for another World Cup because mm-hmm. they missed the next three and didn't qualify yeah. again till 2018. So rather than use it as a platform for themselves, unfortunately, it didn't quite it didn't quite all come together after that. Whereas, you know, for, like I say, for Cameroon and Nigeria, from their first big tournament performances they were able to sort of build on that but what about Senegal... within africa did have they had do they have any success after that with that team or like an africa combination no 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 it didn't really yeah it just didn't really come together i think um i just think a lot of the time i mean this is just me just speculating here i think not that they got complacent after they the players think that they've made it. It's just that now the priorities are different. Like, you know, yeah. if you're, you know, like, you know, you move to the Premier League and you think, right, this is where I've got focus of all my attention almost mm-hmm. on this now, you know. And that's not to say they disregard what the importance of playing for Senegal, but having done the unthinkable by getting to a World Cup quarterfinal, it almost thinks like, it almost feels like, yeah, that it's probably not going to get better. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, one yeah. of the things that always seems to, I mean, be in the press or come up when African teams at the World Cup is, you know, uh, stuff around bonuses or, you know, that like uh, that being kind of withhold. Is, are those, do those problems still persist now? And do you think that still has an impact on their African teams' performances at World Cups? Um, so 2014 was pretty infamous for that with uh, Ghana and Cameroon yeah. and, and Nigeria. Um, so I think beyond that, I mean, 
I've heard stories that they trying to like the FAs are trying to have make get negotiations with FIFA before tournaments to try and say, right, this is what is what, and this is where we, where the money will go rather than it being, you know, taken away from the players before the tournament or whatever, mislaid, mislaid or promised and not being delivered and things like that. So I think they're trying to find, some sort of avenue to prevent this from happening in the future because it has been a problem, especially in you'd think it'd been more of a problem in the past, where which it was, but mm. for like I say, for 2014, when you think a lot of these teams and players are now sort of more respected, more sort of known around the world and better equipped to sort of cope with this sort of thing, it yeah, it's still it's still it still hangs over them and it shouldn't really. So um, yeah. Yeah. And hopefully by as time goes on, it, it stops being a major problem and, you know, teams can actually focus on playing football and letting, not letting distractions over money undermine what they're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, since 2002, I think, I mean, Ghana got to the quarterfinals in 2010, but mm. from sort of then maybe from 2002, where you're thinking, okay, African teams are kind of at the at the door and like about to take the next step and reach a semi-final mm. and obviously uh, I mean Pele said that an African team will win the World Cup by 2000 do you see yeah. this and it, it seems that the gap is rather kind of expanding rather than contracting in many ways with the World Cup increasingly becoming this kind of Western European tournament do you see that changing in the near future or um it's difficult to say I think you're right in the sense that I think the Western European teams are sort of pulling away, and yeah, the kind of even, industrialization of huge, yeah, of, of even 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 so. South even South American teams. I mean, you have even Brazil are not quite what you. They're not the force that they have been in the past. Um, Argentina, I mean, you know, who knows what they do from year to year. I mean, obviously, they obviously two, two still very brilliant, great teams, but yeah. I think it is concentrating towards Europe a lot now. And I think that could be a problem for the rest of the world, not just Africa, but I think African teams on the whole, I think organization is getting better. I think infrastructure is perhaps getting better. I mean, we go back to Senegal post 2002. I mean, like I, 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 you know, I said that they didn't qualify for another world cup when they didn't win any um, um, AFCONs in that time, but Patrick Vieira, again, going back to him, he, um, was part of setting up the uh, the charity and academy in back in Senegal uh, that helped produce players who would go on to feature for the national team, like Idrissa Gay, who played in the 2018 World Cup for Senegal, was mm-hmm. part of the was a graduate of this academy, and obviously now he's playing for Paris Saint Germain. And um, yeah, you, obviously you have players like um, Sadio Mane we've mentioned yeah. as well, uh, Koulibaly at Napoli, who's you know up until this summer had been being talked about for like a 70, 80 million pound defender, um, arguably the best goalkeeper in the world right now, Benjamin Mendy's playing at Chelsea. Um, also Benjamin Mendy there. Oops. <laughs> Men- <laughs> did not, did not mean that at all. Um, yeah. <laughs> Edward Mendy. Edward Mendy. Yeah. Yeah. He'll, he'll be Edward- on to you as well. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And rightfully so. <laughs> yeah. Edward Mendy, who's arguably the best goalkeeper in the world right now is, um, is, is playing for Senegal. And yeah, uh, yeah Ismail Assar at Watford who you know, he's, he's, He's been fantastic for them, not just this season, the last couple of seasons. He's there. And I think 
you know, the quality of player coming out of not again, not just cynical, but a lot of the African teams is getting higher. I mean, yeah, again, not just Mane. You look at Mares at Man City, you got Salah Egypt. You know, these are among the best players in the world, aren't they? And they're all coming out of Africa. But um, it's just a case of trying to just getting it to stick, I think. I think, you know, if there's again, as much as I said the organization's improved, it's still a little bit way, little bit behind. And once that comes if that all comes together, then maybe maybe not a winner anytime soon, but you know, more teams challenging in yeah. coming World Cups. I mean, Qatar should be very interesting uh, to see when well, we don't even know who's there yet, but <laughs> yeah, of the teams that do get there, we will we'll be interested to see how they get on. Because now there's not, I mean, again, going back to what I was saying earlier about how it was perceived to be an established order of certain teams. Now there are probably about 10 teams now who are, if they if they show up at a World Cup, you're like, oh yeah, I remember them being in a World Cup previously. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the same teams that qualify all the time now. This, yeah, uh, there's an argument that you could be. say that Africa is like the hard one of the hard the hardest continent to qualify out of because, like you say, there is a lot of depth of very quality teams, and there's still mm. there's only five places, but that will change for 2026. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so yeah, this time around, um, no, I'm not, I'm not even going to try to remember off the top of my head. But then you get <laughs> you get a lot. So yeah, you'll get in the group stages. You'll have teams that you have got. I think it was Ghana and Ivory Coast were in the same group. Possibly could be yeah. wrong there. But yeah, and only one team goes through to the playoffs where they face another top side where they could go out. So yeah, it's um is a is a tough the way that the um qualifying is for so few teams. And uh, it's something that perhaps they want to rethink. But you know, if we have World Cups every two years, then maybe things will be very different. <laughs> Just so, rotate you know. the teams. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. And then so finally, I mean the Africa combinations is starting uh, next month. Who should uh who should people be looking out for? What teams are going to be? Going to be well, I, just, I mean, I, I just reeled off all the names from the Senegalese yeah. squad there. Yeah. And I think they're going to be among the favourites along with yeah. Egypt, who obviously have Mo Salah there, who is, you know, by far and away, probably the best player in the world right now. Mm. Um, and then you've also got Algeria. And Senegal are still coached by the Alou Cisse from... Alou Cisse, yeah. yeah, yeah. Who played in 2002, yeah. So, yeah, um... Yeah, um yeah, you got Algeria again. Yeah, so you got those two North African sides. You got Nigeria, who should be doing a lot better for the talent that's in the team. Um, there's still sort of so much uncertainty over the managerial position and everything like that. But you know, for the team that they've got, they should be doing a lot better. Um, yeah, and Ghana will be among the favourites there as well. Uh, so yeah, that's you know, that's five teams you can uh, yeah. pick from there to potentially keep an eye on, and you could. Uh, Go on to win this tournament, win the tournament. You know, Ivory Coast will always be up there, so you know they always worth looking at. So, yeah, yeah. And that, what what did you make of this sort of uh, war of words with Klopp and the his comments on Afcon? Do you think it was a bit of a storm storm in a teacup, or it is actually, you know? Um, I think, I mean, I thought initially when I heard it, I thought it was a bit disrespectful on his part. But at the same yeah. time, I kind of think that's him. I just kind of think he hates everything now. Jürgen <laughs> doesn't look very, doesn't seem very happy at the moment. No, He's just, he was happy uh, last night, I think. Well, yeah. He was smiling. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he just seems to, anything that just inconveniences him now, he just seems <laughs> to have a, he just seems to be angry at. I mean, 
Oh, well, like I say, when I first heard the comments, I thought, oh, that's hugely disrespectful. But then people pointed out that he says this about all international football, basically. Yeah, exactly. So he's uh, he's just, yeah, just very unhappy. He, get, he gets annoyed about domestic competitions, doesn't he? If there's an FA Cup game that gets in his way, he doesn't like that, does he? So, you know, he's, um, yeah, it's, he's still, I think, yeah. yeah. Hmm. He still played Salah last night when it was, I mean, not necessarily. Well, there you go, cool. yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Wildly yeah. off topic. But thank you yeah. so much, Ibrahim. Ibrahim. Is there anything else that you're uh, working on right now? Have you got uh, another idea for a book that you're thinking about? Or what's, uh, what's the plan? Um, I've got ideas and just, they just need to come together basically. So, you know, it's all, I have an idea, I write it down and something, right. Okay. Does that really work together? So, you know, we'll see maybe in the new year, maybe announce something or another. So, yeah. Okay. Now, cool. no, nothing at the moment. Oh, well, there's a couple of things in my, in here. Okay, <laughs> up there okay. in my brain gotta move but it then, from there onto the yeah page. i just gotta move it i mean i've got it down on the page i was just <laughs> trying to connect it to make it interesting and to make sense basically so um yeah so you know stuff stuff will be coming hopefully okay sounds great and if people want to follow you on twitter or anything like that why would they how would they get yeah just um my name ibrahim mustafa all one word uh, it's mustafa with a ph not with an f as well so um yeah, yeah that's all that's me on twitter um do you want to follow me on Instagram? I've got a football league, football themed Instagram account called My Random Football, all one okay. word, and that's on Instagram. And um, yeah, those are the two main places if you want to keep up. So uh, yeah, that's it. All right, thanks so much, Ibrahim. It was absolute absolute pleasure. Really interesting, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good evening. You too. Take care. Take care. Bye now. Bye. Podcast Network.